Michael Palin, or Sir Michael, as he's been styled for the last few years, has had so many different strands to his career, from, of course, his early years with the Python team, to his film and acting careers. Oh, and as a wonderful travelling companion on his numerous tele-travel programmes to all corners of the globe. And he's outpeaked Samuel by publishing three volumes of his own diaries with another volume out sometime soon. But in between times, and perhaps uh, particularly during COVID, Michael has been uh, reading the diaries of a member of his family of whom he knew very little, his own great uncle Harry, a bit of a black sheep in his uh, very high achieving family. Harry sadly died in the Battle of the Somme in September 1916. Now, Michael has documented his search for Harry in a new book called Great Uncle Harry, A Tale of War and Empire, and it's published by Penguin Random House. Welcome to our little wireless program, Michael. Thank you, thanks. A little about your dynasty. It was very respectable, verging on the stuffy. (laughs) Yes. Um, exactly. I think that's what Great Uncle Harry felt, which is why he ended up leaving the country and um, emigrating to New Zealand, ending up in the war. Yes, a little bit stuffy, but quite quite interesting collection of people um, I, I found along the way, including someone who hid King Charles in the oak tree, or two chicken chuckers. <laughs> Well, Harry's father was a vicar, I understand, and uh... I mean that that disguises really the sort of the the the, the, the subtleties of it all. He was actually um, a very successful don at St John's College, Oxford, um, and was about to become president of the college, highly regarded. Um, and he went on a walking holiday, which he described in his diary, and met um, a young girl, lots about seventeen years younger than himself. Um, and gave up his life at the college for this girl. She was called Brita, and she was an Irish orphan. Her parents died in the in the potato um, famine of the 1840s. She fell on her feet, was adopted when she was taken to America, the coffin ship, um, so-called, because so many died on the, on the journey. And uh, a, a very uh, well-educated woman with sort of strong feminist beliefs um, educated her in in um, in New Jersey and brought her to Europe in 1861 um, on the Grand Tour. So that that's that's how they that they fit in. Now it seems that Harry was not very academic. No, no, I can't find any traits of any qualification he had at all. So you went to the same school many years later as the third yeah. generation of Palins. How extraordinary. Well, we, there were very, in those days, you sort of, if things were going right, you just kept on that course. It's been very tricky in doing the research that um, my great-grandfather, the, the Don who became a vicar, was called Edward. Uh, his son was called Edward. His son, my father, was called Edward, <laughs> and I'm called Edward, but Michael Edward, fortunately, I've got the Michael there to distinguish me from all the rest. So they sort of kept names. If it was all working, keep it going, like Shrewsbury <laughs> School. Um, send them all to Shrewsbury School. It's got tradition and all that, despite the fact that, as I talk about in the book, Harry's um, brother 
died at the age of 18 whilst at Shrewsbury School, probably from typhoid going to the unsanitary conditions in the river that passed the school. I understand that his name was on the war memorial out in front of the school. Did you ever notice the Palin name while you were there? Well, now this is quite interesting. When I was at Shrewsbury, there was another war, which is an old sort of... Uh, it's where those who were successful in athletics were able to carve their name. You can actually do it yourself um, on on a school wall. And two of the, the Palins were on that wall. And that's what I looked at. That's, that's what you, at the time, was, was seen to be, oh, that's a, that's a proud achievement. You've got a relative on the wall. The school wall memorial, I have to say, I never really looked at it. And I never saw H.W.B. Payton's name on that memorial while, while I was at school. It was just something that was there, but didn't feel very close to you. Well, now you've become an ardent biographer of Harry, but you were a bit reluctant, it would seem, because when a cousin brought the diaries at first to you, uh, you weren't that interested. No, I mean... The, the diaries, I have to say, were part of a big package of uh, papers, photographs. Um, uh, and, and at that time, I think it was probably sometime in the 1970s, this great cousin brought them around. And at that time, I was just concerned not with the past and the family, but with, with the present and the future, what I was going to do. Uh, um, Python was, was uh, beginning to make films then. Were we going to carry on with that? Um, could we afford a an extension of the house, uh, the, the children's education, all that sort of was um, obsessing me at the time. And looking back, I think it's a bit of a luxury. It comes as you get older. Now, after Henry finished school, he went to India, not unusual for the time, and uh, you found some reports of Harry's time working on a tea plantation. He didn't get the best report. No, these were, I mean, the whole story of Harry was putting together things from almost nothing. It was just a photograph of him as a soldier, which intrigued me. Um, so any little sort of assessments or any, any references to Harry were like gold dust. And I found that a firm called Finley's Glasgow, who were tea, uh, had tea plantations, um, employed him, and they had... Um, and they have an archive in which reports about the employees uh, who were brought to the tea plantations uh, was sent home to Glasgow, and they're all available. And Harry, Harry was sort of started well. They thought he was going to be okay. He'd settled down, and then gradually the tone changed. You know, he seems to be a rather sort of self-satisfied young man. They said at one point, and after two years, the reports got so bad that he was. They decided to pack up. So he's sent back home uh, with, with that evocation. Okay, so let's now aim at New Zealand. He ends up on a ship to New Zealand. What do you think Harry was hoping to find there? I think he was, I don't know if it was anything positive. It was certainly he was going to get away from people telling him what to do, what job he should do, what career path he should follow. His... Um, parents um, were both highly educated. His eldest brother had been uh, got a first Christchurch college, was a successful doctor. The, um, the girls, his sisters, had all married well, and I think Harry couldn't 
uh, because he was a restless person, he couldn't identify with these people at all, and he wanted to be free of the pressure. So I think the idea of going to New Zealand was that he could get there cheaply, assisted passage. He would um, he would work on a farm. That was all that, um, that that was the only prospect. But it was freedom, freedom from people telling him what to do. I, I I suddenly wonder whether you don't identify with this. Perhaps that's a part of what has driven you as well. Well, I do actually, and I found this. I, I kind of resisted writing it with an idea of saying how similar we might have been or dissimilar but I absolutely do identify with that sense of sort of um, a, a kind of independent spirit which sometimes borders on sort of arrogance you think you know what to do better than anyone else does um, and I, I share that a bit and also I, I, I was, I've never been employed uh, as a salaried employee ever I've been freelance all my life I've depended on meeting people who have propelled me into various um, other, other jobs, like that comedian or, or comedy writer, um, and in the end, to being a, a traveller. You know, BBC just got in touch with me and said, oh, you can get anything tomorrow, we can go around the world. I'm, I'm um, going to stab myself on the back for this marvellous piece of insight because uh, clearly <laughs> your portrait of great Uncle Harry is to some extent a self-portrait. Now, just when he seems to be settling down to life in New Zealand, war comes and he's off again. He's, heavens above it, he's among the first to enlist in New Zealand. Yeah. Why, yeah. why, why? I think because his he the great thing that Harry had was a sense of camaraderie. He made friends easily, and he was very loyal to friends. And I think that the boys who were working, the young men who were working on the farm in New Zealand, were a lot of them were people who come from England for exactly the same reasons as Harry to get away from being bossed around. Um, but when you know when, when they all decided that to go and fight for king and country, he was not going to be left out, and. At the feeling at the time from the study I've done was that they were confident that this war would be over by Christmas and it was all going to be a jolly jape and they go out with the lads and they go back to Europe. He'd be able to see his family he hadn't seen for many years. And, and you know, it's all, it all just a bit of a game. They didn't really understand until they got there what the reality of the war was. Now, let's introduce the diary because he starts one as he sets off, and you describe it as little green leather diaries with pencil-scribbled entries. Yeah, these, these were, the, I mean, this most important uh, discovery I made in the in the archive of stuff that was given to me in a big cardboard box by this, this uh, great cousin. Right at the bottom, very slim notebooks, and I just opened the envelope, looked inside, and there were these notebooks, and they were very tightly written uh, pencil scribbles. And I just thought these are just putting down how how much he spent that day or whatever. And I realized actually they were all written in Gallipoli while he was actually um, out there as a soldier. And these entire diaries were, were Harry's experiences as a soldier from the moment he signed up in Nelson to the, the three weeks before he died in, in France. So they were really important. I, I can't resist reading a fragment from the uh, Gallipoli Diaries. Received a letter from Mother and a box containing peppermint creams from Mary. Poor little Joe Rankin 
died of his wounds on the 10th of July, RIP. Heavens above, what poignancy. Yeah, it's that mixture, isn't it, of the, the murderous and the mundane, you know. Um, one day he could be in the middle of an assault, losing some of his best friends. The next day he's very relieved because he's been sent a pair of socks or, in one case, acid drops. And I'm not saying it amazes me how the Postal Service managed to get this material out to the Gallipoli battlefields. I mean, I don't know what the Postal Service is like in Australia, but here you're lucky if you get something from somewhere around the corner. <laughs> now, some other characteristic here that reminds me of you. He never used <laughs> bad language. Uh, yes. Yeah, I, I, I do use bad language. Um but but usually not public. <laughs> I know I don't. I'm not. Uh, I, 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 I love words and I love language. And I always think that that um, using certain words just because you can't think of how to express yourself is is a little bit of a sort of easy option. <laughs> and I'm not. A, I'm not a big swear. Did you ever get frustrated by his well by his reticence, Michael? Yes, it was very frustrating. Um, he 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 says very little sometimes. I mean, there are passages in the diary. There's one occasion there coming from Australia, going on the fleet back to Europe, and there's a terrific storm. And uh, this is described very well by some people. The boat rocked. Um, horses on board were were sort of rearing up and shouting and screaming. Some of them were washed over the side. And the next morning, Harry just writes, you know, sort of bad night. <laughs> that's it. Uh, so, I, I, but but that but that was him. That's the way he was. And he's not always reticent. There are there are times when he does. He he writes quite uh, a long entry. Very often, it is when he's lost friends, and he lists the friends he's lost, their names. He's not really interested so much in the strategy that might have cost them their lives or the politics of what they're fighting for or even the weapons they're fighting with. In it's a sense, he's creating his own war memorial. Yes. Well, that, that's what that's what the, the war meant to him was the loss of his friends was the thing that I think finally disillusioned. Michael, there are nonetheless quite interesting passages here and there. He'd, uh, he risks his life to have a swim and remove yes. the lice uh, that's torturing yeah. them all. And he, heavens above, he becomes an interpreter with the Indian forces. Yes. One rather clutches at straws with Harry, because he doesn't get much recommendation from anybody, but because he'd been to India, I think quietly and without, he doesn't keep a diary in India, so I don't really know about that, but he'd obviously learned the language sufficiently to impress the opposites. Uh, at Gallipoli, because there were quite a number of Indian troops fighting there. Um, and Harry was one of the few people who was actually able to speak their language. And there's one day, I think, when he, he's it, quite unusually and describes feeling rather good, you know, pleased that he'd been acknowledged as someone who could, could teach the language. Um, and that meant more to him than, than, than you know, most other stuff. Michael Palin is my guest, author of Great Uncle Harry, A Tale of War and Empire. Do you ever wonder who Harry was writing the diaries for? Yes, yes. 
I, I do, uh, and that's a very good question because I don't know. Um, there were, you know, there's a general, well, two things. There's a general feeling that, um, well, certainly officers should keep a diary um, of their uh, of their military service. I don't know he, if he was affected by that. Also, I mean, his father was a diarist. I'm a diarist. Um, maybe there's something in the family genes that makes you want to write down what you did each day. Um, who is writing it for? I assume for himself, really, to keep a record of these extraordinary times. And also, I suppose, to be able to explain it later to his family and his friends back home, what he'd done. But uh, it's a good question, and I've never been able to answer that. So we go between the murderous and the mundane. The the list of letters and parcels sent and received is, I guess, a reminder that people still cared about him. Yes, yes, that that's that's very true. There's part of the sort of story of Harry is that, as I've said earlier, the family were all doing better than he was, and he wanted to get away from them to somewhere where he could be free and make his own decisions. But I think he never. He, he, there was never a, a, a rift with the family, and he um, is very appreciative of what's sent to him by, by, by the family. And he writes that in his diary um, quite regularly, what he's received, who he's received it from. And as he goes after Gallipoli, he's being transferred from Egypt to the Western Front. Um, he, you know, the, he, there's, there's a moment when he's in a train going through France and it takes him north to a point where he looks out over the English Channel and says, I'm only 22 miles from home. And then, you know, he turns to the trenches, which are, uh, again, only about 60 or 70 miles from where he, his, his, his mother is living. So I think he was very, you, you, uh, home meant a lot to him. And the family did mean a lot to him in the end. It's, it fascinates me why people write diaries, who they write them for. I've just been re-listening to Peep's diaries, read... Uh, Oh, by yeah. Kenneth Branagh, wonderful read, and uh, one yeah. wonders who yes. Peeps was writing for. Yeah, yeah. Well, Peeps, I think, was quite a... Uh, I think, uh, actually, part of the reason you keep a diary is that there's something about life that you really enjoy. There's a feeling that what you're doing each day is <laughs> worth remembering. Well, with Peeps, it was often sexual hanky-panky, which he'd write in a personal code. But anyway, I'm sure that doesn't happen in your diaries. You've kept them for most of your life. Who are they for, or who were they for initially, Michael? Um, They were for me, really, to record the days, remember the days, remember what I'd done. And also, I mean, actually... I started it as a discipline after I'd given up smoking in 1969. Our youngest, uh, eldest child was one year old. um, And somehow having a little toddler on your knee and smoking seemed incompatible. Uh, So I I, I gave up sort of almost cold turkey and thought, what what have I done in my life that I really could replace this as a sort of habit? I thought, well, I did keep a diary after school. I'll try again. And from that moment on, I've kept a diary, well, since, since since 1969, since just before Monty Python was, uh, began its work. It's interesting, isn't it, that diaries were once as common as autograph books. Yes. Yes. I, I, I mean, there is a, a, 
a project in England which I've supported, uh, one of the big libraries in London. It's called the Diary, Great Diary Project. And the idea is to uh, make people aware that any diary, any reminiscence could, is, is valuable historical material. And people, if they find a diary up in the attic or anything like that, uh, to send it in. And they've got a huge number of diaries now just talking about the mundane things of life, which I think is very, very important. Tell me about the tin of meat at Gallipoli. Oh, this is, this is, I mean, I think this happened to other people, but Harry is, um, a bullet hits Harry, goes into his knapsack and goes through a tin of meat, uh, sequels, I think a tin of corned beef, that was it, and then into the biscuit tin. And the tin of corned beef had saved his life, he reckoned, because it's the rest of the process of the bullet. Um, and it, it only got as far as the biscuits rather than his heart. Michael, it would it would have been perfect if it had been a tin of spam. Well, it would really, yes. I can't claim that, yeah. <laughs> but it is extraordinary that he's posted to some of the most deadly battles on the peninsula, and he survives because not many New Zealand soldiers did. No. No, the, the losses were, were, were colossal. And uh, Harry was always, we read his diaries, he was always... Around the action, he was carrying ammunitions up. He was carrying bodies from, uh, down to the shore to be taken uh, you know, back home and all that. Uh, but what got him in the end was um, was enteric fever, dysentery, really. And I think I think the statistics are that more people died of disease after the Gallipoli campaign than died of um, a, 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 you know, military action. So yeah, but he was he was he was lucky, but. In the end, they got him. You know, he was he was he was taken off because he was ill. But a lot of his friends uh, never made it. Well, Michael, he survives Gallipoli and is sent to the Western Front, and his diaries continue to show the surreal nature of war, and the entries are simply astonishing. He, however, he does start to get a, a bit political in a sense. He starts to express frustration with the officers yes. in France. Yes, yeah. Uh, this is the first time he gets at all sort of political or, or acknowledges the wider significance of the war. And again, if you read it, it's because there have been actions in which friends have been killed. And he feels those actions were quite unnecessary. Um, now, this has to be distinguished from the Battle of the Somme itself, where none of them seemed to question the fact that this was the big push against the Germans and everyone was going to be involved, however big for casualties. But he was fighting um, further north in a place called Armontier, and it, it, he felt that the officers were deliberately encouraging incursions against the Germans just to keep you know, their, their status as, as, as generals. They had to keep fighting somebody. That's why they were all there. But he saw through this and felt it was unnecessary um, and gets and gets very angry about the about the generals, how, you know, it's all right for them. What about the men actually doing their dirty work? Let me, he, let me read a yeah. fragment. Heard that the row was uh, another failure. Most of the men getting smacked up by shrapnel and machine gun fire before they could uh, get into the uh, Hun trenches. 
When will the authorities take a hint that these raids are no use and only break the men's hearts? Now, that's getting pretty good prose. That is good prose, isn't it? Yeah, yes. He can do it. I think he was a bit lazy, that side. I think that was a part of Harry. He just, if he didn't want to do something, he wouldn't do it. He didn't apply himself. But there, and that's a good piece you, re- you, you read there, because that, that, that's quite moving, because that's, a, that's real feeling. One of the reasons Peeps and you and great-uncle Henry wrote a diary is because it's damn good therapy. Yes. Yeah, yeah, I absolutely, I absolutely agree with that. I think it's very good therapy as a writer, actually. And I enjoy writing. And every morning, well, not every morning, but most mornings, I sit down at nine o'clock and I write an account of the day before. And it's just, it's good for two things. One, I, I use I use a pen, so it's kind of handwriting, which is a sort of dying art now. Um, but also, it, it is just that, yes, it, it's 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 very good for me to express and try and express the normal mundane things of life and make them sound interesting and select the right things to say. And that's, that's, that's very therapeutic for a writer. Let me now read Harry's last entry. Very cold wind blowing, almost wintry, pretty cold after being wet through last night, got off the, uh, the morning parade. Now, this is typical of the entries, isn't it? It leaves yes. you wanting more. Yes, yes. But by by now, one knows enough about Harry to know that he's not, you know, he's just telling you really what what it's like out there. Nothing much is happening just yet. Um, but even the little twist at the end got out of the morning. Right. It's quite that's good to avoid it. Yeah, yeah. And that's the last word he says, really. But of course, he didn't get out of the the assault, which killed him very soon after. Michael, what do you what did you learn about how Harry died? Well, I uh, the, the the report in New Zealand Archive by Sergeant Gridley, who was beside him in the shell hole as they were halfway through the attack, was simply said that he stood up and was shot through the head and died instantly. Um, now, later on, friends whose diaries I use later um, say nothing was heard. No one heard any more information about him for. Uh, several weeks. So his body was never found. Now, I, I read theories really saying that, that what, what, what was done by, by the authorities was to send messages which seemed encouraging to the, pe- to the parents. You know, he died in action. He died instantly. Whereas, in fact, most people died in a, a you know, volley of, sort of bombs, explosions, artillery, howitzer fire. Harry, I think if he wasn't found then he was either buried under under the mud in that particular field, or he was just um, obliterated, as I think I said, call it in the book. It was just um, bits of him were never found. But that, when I read that that uh, he was his body was never found, I mean that very that, that struck me very very strongly. I felt what what would it be like for the family? All right, after all these years, Harry finally um, does a heroic thing, dies in battle. But no one knows where he is. No one knows where his body is. Nothing of his has been found. And that's what I... So I think maybe it was a worse death than they thought. Look, thanks for that. It's been a pleasure and a privilege to talk to you, Michael Palin. 
writer extraordinaire, actor, traveller, and uh, a biographer of Great Uncle Harry, a tale of war and empire, written in ink and published by Penguin Random House. It's easier than ever to hear your favourite local and national ABC radio stations, live and on demand on the ABC Listen app.